On this episode of Real Estate Insiders Unfiltered, we talk about the national debt, a housing oversupply. Yes, you heard that right, not an undersupply, and also some really incredible parenting advice. It's going to be an incredible show. Tune in. You talk about it privately, we talk about it publicly. This is the Real Estate Insiders Unfiltered Podcast. Welcome again to Real Estate Insiders Unfiltered Podcast. I'm your host, James Swiggins, along with my co-host, Keith Robinson, aka Crazy Uncle Keith. Yes, By the way, we have sir. some new quotes in this in this episode, which we'll we get do. to in a little bit. Uh, <laughs> Keith, Fresh tell material. us, Mr. Fanboy, about yes. our guest today and what uh, we covered. I've loved all of our guests, but this one for <laughs> me was a special day. I've been a follower and admirer of Ivy Zellman, the co-founder of Zellman and Associates for years. I go to her conference religiously uh, every single year. It's the best economic forecast, thought, think tank, positioning your company in the right way for the coming years conference that I've ever been to. Um, she's a cover. pretty big guest cause she's, I've seen her all over the news and interviews and everything else. She's so. been on Bloomberg, CNBC, yeah. it, you name it. She's, she's been, been there. there talking about it. We, we covered a bunch of different topics. We talked about actually, interestingly enough, she has an opinion that we have a housing over supply, mm -hmm. uh, not the undersupply that's often reported. We talked about the national debt, what it was like coming up as a young lady on wall street in the alpha male environment. Great conversation. Uh, yes. And she also gave us some life skills as two fathers of strong young women. <laughs> so we covered all the a bases lot. with Ivy. It was awesome. Yeah. It'd be an incredible show. Tune in. Ivy, welcome to the show. We are super excited to have you here and have you grace our podcast. I know I will start with you have a fanboy. Yes. on this podcast <laughs> Keith, be you've been to yes all of the conferences i think well, all of them since i heard about them they've been going on for a long time but okay. uh the zelman conference is one of my can't miss conferences i tend to go there and have ivy and her team uh fill my brain full of knowledge and then come back and regurgitate it and then everyone thinks i'm brilliant so now that my is secrets, true by the now way my secrets out <laughs> well, thank you Keith. i appreciate that we, we yeah. love the sport. By the way, we, we were doing it 16 years at Zellman, and I've been doing it for 30 years when I worked at the Bolt Racket Firm. So, yeah, six you've years, been doing it for a long time. Yeah. 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 He thank sends you for, pages and pages of notes, by the way, <laughs> of which I can't understand half of it. So I just ask him, where are we going, Keith? Yeah. And he gives us this update. So he just has me do thumbs up, thumbs down, like a, uh, like a Facebook post yeah. or something. Yeah. 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 So Ivy, let's start with this. Cause we got a lot of questions in a short amount of time with you. Um, first, just tell the listeners and viewers a little bit about, uh, your background, current role. How did the path look like getting where you are today, et cetera? Okay, my background. Um, well, I actually started out um, in New York going to a community college called Baruch, uh, City College, and worked my way through getting my undergrad degree. It took me six years, wound up community college in Northern Virginia called Nova, fell in love with a guy and moved for love. And I did that twice. Uh, <laughs> eventually, my husband is now an ex-husband. So, but um, so I went to Nova. Then I finished my undergrad at George Mason. I majored in accounting. I worked as a administrative assistant at an accounting firm. Now, um, for those not old enough to remember, Arthur Young. Mm -hmm. That was Ernst Young, and I don't even know what they are now. But um, I asked all these accountants. I said, you know, 
I'm majoring in accounting, you know, do you like doing what you're doing? And they were like, hell no. I said, oh, that sounds great. Uh, yeah, like, what should sweet. I do? I mean, I'm, they're like, well, you wouldn't be good in accounting. You should go work on Wall Street. And I had no idea what that meant. Uh, George Mason didn't certainly have any Wall Street firms recruiting there. So I went about getting a job on Wall Street and started out at Solomon Brothers in their investment banking two-year program, and uh, which was like hell, best way to describe it, uh, working 80 to 100 hours a week. And I was one of three women out of 70. Um, that was There's a lot of stories there, but in terms of my career shifted after two years, you're out of a job. We had a recession going on. I had to pay my rent. I didn't get into the Ivy League schools of Stanford, Northwestern, and Harvard rejected me, even though I had like incredible credentials. So luckily, I found a job internally and just was grateful to be able to pay my rent in equity research as a housing associate for a gentleman by the name of Bruce Harding, who just uh, picked up the group as a favor because the lights were going out at Solomon. There was a big treasury scandal, and he picked it up as a favor, and that's how I got into equity research, and I've been doing it for 30 years. Wow. Interesting. There's a lot a of questions in, that, in, in all of that. A bunch. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I'm sorry. So I have to ask just because you mentioned this and just knowing sort of how this has shifted. You said you were one of three women out of 70 people at the organization. Oh, or 70 in the training program. In the, the training program. program. Yeah. And actually, I was so intimidated because they were all Ivy League graduates, and here I was, state school, and um, two years older than most of them, and, you know, felt like I had to prove myself. And it's just I, funny because decades later, you know, I was sort of BSing with one of the guys that I was friendly with, and I was like, oh, my God, I was so intimidated. Because intimidated, we, we were yeah. like, just totally intimidated of you. Like, how the hell did you get in? Yeah. And, yeah. You know, so it was just sort of eye-opening but i was really scared shitless that i was going to fail and be you know completely called out for not being one of them uh, fear is uh fear can be a powerful motivator right you should channel it the right yes. way yeah. yeah yeah that's been my whole life story keith yeah yeah i think yeah. i'm finally not afraid anymore at least about my career yeah, finally, huh? Yeah. I'm afraid about other things. I mean, I'm afraid of yeah, my children. I, the yeah, the image of you things. being intimidated by anything is actually hard for yeah. me to process, but I will believe you because it is your story. Uh, well, maybe we'll do the that. rapid fire questions real let's quick. Let's do that because we'll, yeah. I think it's fitting for yeah. this conversation. So, uh oh, um, here we go. Yeah. Let's do it. Can you start us out? <laughs> sure. All right. Uh, keep it light and fun out of the gate. If you were a superhero, who would you be and why? Uh, Wonder Woman. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Could see she that. Badass and hot. That's, yeah. that's the best, yeah. <laughs> It's checking a lot of boxes. She great. She has a great costume. Yeah. No. Yeah. I, I think so. Uh oh. Sorry. My dog's barking. That's all, all right. Good. All good. That's all good. Amazing. Okay. Your dog's uh, a fan of that answer, too. I'm going to so, close, close the door. Yeah. Go okay. for it. Yeah. Go for it. Amazing. Make it happen. Okay. Badass and hot are excellent. I, I definitely want to get something Wonder Woman now to put on your on your shelf so that it's, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, there. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. So I two, mean, isn't that a great costume? Right. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. 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 And it, it definitely and a great series uh, and and everything behind it. We actually have questions that are going to follow up related to that as well because I think you know Keith and I both have daughters, so yeah. we have questions we want to ask around that. All we right. Do. So real fast, favorite uh, book or podcast this year and why? Um, well, if I can have more than one, I read sure. a book 
um, I'm a big reader, but I read a book, Strength to Strength, uh, by Arthur Brooks, that mm. uh, really was apropos for me as you think about where you are in your career and your life and highly recommend it for people in my age cohort that's been where you've been successful and, you know, what's your purpose and where do you go next? So that was really enlightening for me and what validating. Was, what was the um, title again? I'm, I, strength, I from Strength to Strength. From strength by to Arthur Brooks. Um, I loved another one, uh, 4,000 Weeks by Ar uh, Oliver Berkman. And 4,000 Weeks is basically 80 years of life. And it really talks about time management. And it, it just it did a fabulous job. I listened to it. I, I listen to audiobooks while I, I walk and work out. But um, I had a podcast I just love. It wasn't really a podcast. I just listened to it with uh, Stanley Druckenmiller and Paul Tudor for 30 minutes. And it's just as phenomenal that you can Google and find it on YouTube or search for it, whatever. But just a few um, come to mind right now. We always do Perfect. these questions because it lets listeners and viewers like pick up new stuff to, you know, to listen to or, or research from, you know, very interesting guests that we have on the show. So yeah, it uh, lets me Keith, add to my book stack. <laughs> yeah. And Keith is a very, very avid reader. So yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, last question, Keith, and then we'll move on to our, sure. our main subjects. So, if you could have lunch with one person, current or historical, who would it be and why? Well, I just recently saw Condoleezza Rice um, mm. at a conference that my parent company, Walker Dunlop, um, hosted in Sun Valley. And I had read her book. Um, this was actually back 10 years ago. I saw her present at a mortgage conference and she blew me away. And I read her book after I saw that. And just so much about her from her you know, struggles growing up in uh, basically a racist world and not being able to go in restaurants and schools where mm. everything was segregated. And then you know, being basically able to not only overcome that, but working as uh, Secretary of State and, and also at Stanford being the provost. Um, she's actually performed in front of the Queen playing piano, but she's also played at the Masters at Augusta. She said that actually the thing that she only really time she's ever got, got nervous was on the first tee when the entire staff came out to watch her. <laughs> but she's just really fascinating and she's also total badass. So I'd love to have lunch with her. Yeah. That's Great a good answer. one. That's a good one. All right. Well, uh, I'll lead us off, Keith, and okay, then you can dive in on these. So, all right. So let's let's you know you're obviously you have a lot of clients that you that you work with and advise. So let's start with one of the hot topics right now that's all <laughs> over the news everywhere, especially in our business. Um, thoughts on the recent NAR class action suits that are happening? How it might impact the industry from your perspective? So, you know, I think that that. Um, lawsuit is obviously now kind of um, front and center with other class action um, lawsuits piggybacking off of that one. I think it's going to really hurt affordability for buyers. Um, today, you know, they um, certainly can't um, include it in the mortgage being financed. Uh, so it's another incremental cost for the buyer. I think it ultimately comes out of the sales price because the seller is going to have to accommodate what might be a difficult um you know, equation for the buyer to figure out because they have to come up with a down payment. Now they have to come up with a cost that they'll have to incur that they haven't had to. So I think it's it's a negative for affordability and it's certainly a negative for, um, you know, overall the uh, realtor industry in terms of the bottom line margin to their business. I was actually chatting with a builder, asked his perspective, a large private builder on the West Coast. And he said, you know, these guys bring in people, we never see them, they're worthless. And the fact is we got to pay them and they just don't do anything. So it's good for their business. So the builders mm -hmm. are winning as a result of this lawsuit potentially. 
So mm-hmm. I, I think the biggest thing that would concern me is just that it's more more challenging for buyers now. At a time when affordability right. was- Right, when everything stretched, right. Yeah, yeah, so it just exacerbates the problem. It's interesting because the there's there's so many equations to this and as far as how the system works currently, the, you know, the, the whole idea is being able to help the buyer have representation in a very infrequent transaction that they do two or three times in their life. Um, you know, and, and a lot of this, a lot of the conversations, how this is going to affect minorities, because they're already, they already struggle to be able to afford a house as it is. And then now potentially making, having to choose in theory, whether they have representation or not in purchasing a property is it's, it's almost like, you know, the, the lawyers in these cases are talking about how they're helping consumers. And you could argue both ways on it going, mm, I don't know. <laughs> like, right. You actually could be making this a lot worse for American consumers because they're, they're not having this option to have help per se, um, you know, in this in this process. Well, so, they are. They're just saying you have to pay for it now. Right. You can't yeah. have representation. We just have to pay for it. Do yeah. you think that the financing will change so that the commissions can be financed? What's your take on? I mean, you're in tune with. I this mean, stuff. I think that given the challenges that it will, um, the challenge that we face as an industry or the, they face as an industry is that affordability issue. So, will Fannie, Freddie, Ginny Mae, will they start to contemplate it, it, allowing it to be financed? It's possible. I know. I I think you know there's skin in the game with a down payment or very little skin if you're talking FHA or 100% financing for VAs. But you know I, I think that it's a possibility. Yeah, I mean banks tent banks are only make money when they lend money, right? And right. so they're, and they're they're struggling right now. I mean the the mortgage market is just you know appalling right now and how bad yeah. it's doing. So yeah. I think they would want to fight, figure out ways, but that's really not their decision. I mean, you're looking at the majority of loans are Ginny, uh, Fannie, Freddie, yeah. um, FHA, and so VA. It really will have to be a decision, basically, by the regulators, by FHFA, and you know the government. Yep. Before yep. we move on to another question, I just, what is your, how do you think all this shakes out, and are, are there going to be casualties? I'm, I'm assuming you're going to say realtors, but beyond real estate agents, are there going to be other casualties with this? This with all of these cases and potential outcome? Well, I think the industry is struggling right now. We're seeing tremendous pressure on bottom lines as a result of the lack of transactions. And Mm -hmm. you know, what we're seeing today, if you look at the total transaction in the United States, we're really looking at record lows with respect to historic um, measures that we look at. So if you take the recent print, 3.96 million homes annualized that was just printed for September, um, that divided by households is roughly 3%. That's actually the lowest level it is in pretty much every recession we've had going back to, you know, 8081. So we're seeing really low levels. And so when you look at the brokerage industry, they really don't make a lot of money on transactions as it is. And so when the margins are so thin, and now you're taking away, you know, incremental margin that the splits to the to the owner of the brokerage firm, um, I think it's going to, you know, we're going to see some casualties. We'll see more um, unfortunately, doors close, and we will see attrition and realtors. Um, the incredible amount of realtors that came into the industry, we'll see an exodus of industry uh, of realtors leaving the industry. What it's percentage it, are you forecasting? Sorry, Keith, I just that's okay. Mike, no, so no, go ahead. No, what, what we don't have forecasts for it. I would just say that mm-hmm. you know we're already seeing pressure on those numbers. I think that it's more challenging to bring in new recruits, but I do think that the you know sort of party is over. And, you know, that party where, you know, 2020 COVID, it just sort of exploded. The industry had already been seeing an upward trajectory. I think that that is going to just reverse. 
So if you looked at the numbers, what I, I which I haven't, say, okay, how many realtors did we have in that by 19? Are we going to give back all those realtors that entered the market during COVID? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the kind of classic boom bust of residential real estate as far as agents coming in, but it's just exacerbated, right? Every, the volumes turned way up. Um, right. Yeah. Okay. Help me Ivy because I'm confused. I need the Oracle of Ivy to guide all me. Right. Uh, I've never been, I, I'm not an economist, I, I am, but I try to pay attention and I'm baffled. Credit card debt, way up. Savings, way down. Consumer confidence, down. Yet consumer spending still ripping. And where is where are they getting all this money? And where when does the U.S. consumer stop spending and finally just say, I surrender? Because everything else I look at says they should already have stopped. Well, the savings is is down, but it's not you know depleted. It's yeah. certainly lower than it was during when you know we're writing you know stimulus checks and everybody was collecting money from the government. And I think what we're seeing right now is the cracks. The cracks yeah. are forming. Uh, we've been just super surprised on the resiliency of the housing market with respect mm -hmm. to the lease on the demand side for the new construction market has been very um, relative, you know, robust. But we're seeing cracks there. We just published our October survey and we're seeing really greater than weakness, greater than seasonal weakness in October. Incentives really picking up and definitely pricing pressure now uh, going to negative where we had seen it reverse and started to incrementally increase. Now we're seeing it go negative again. So I think you're seeing signs of it, but we've been like you just baffled is your word. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I certainly would think that it would be much worse. The economy based on, you know, where we are with respect to the cost of debt. I mean, that being the biggest factor, but remember, you know, Powell hasn't broken the back of the economy yet. We still have strong job growth. Right. still have pretty strong wages. And until we really see employment come down, I think that that resiliency is, is at risk as we see job growth decelerate for the for the october retrench do you see that is it an oversimplification to just say it's rates went over eight and stayed there for a while or is there other pieces going into to that phase well we were trying to figure out why how can the housing market going into 23 having reaccelerated after the you know six months of real significant weakness um mm -hmm. how did it reaccelerate why did it reaccelerate i think it had a lot to do with the builders had uh created at least on the new home market a lot of value through discounting and price cuts so you had about yeah. net net some markets including incentives you actually saw as much as a 20 percent decrease in markets mm -hmm. like phoenix so it ranged anywhere from five to 20 depending on the market and you know it was almost like safe to go back in the water and and start buying again and i think as you have a a pent-up demand factor because COVID, a lot of people didn't get to buy when they wanted to buy right and so i think that those people were you know waiting for the opportunity they come in and will that demand get depleted we also have a tremendous wealth transfer that's happened in this nation where we have, you know, you know, people like myself, not my kids are too young, but other parents, and I, I started later, but let's say my age cohort and a little bit higher are buying their kids' houses, and there's right. a lot of wealth that they're transferring. We also yeah. still have the arbitrage that, you know, m migrating to the north to south, west to south, whatever you may call it, but that's enabled more affordability to be um, mitigated or the stretched affordability mitigated. But I think as we're starting to see that seasonal slowing, greater than normal i mm. think that the builders have been stepping on the gas specking more mm. and thinking it's you know everything's great and i don't think everything's <laughs> great i think right. we're seeing 
cracks and I would be really cautious going into 24. And that's not even, I'm not an economist either, Keith, but looking at what PAL's strategy is and thinking about the cost of debt today and all these businesses that are negatively impacted. I mean, we're seeing, you know, whether it be commercial real estate being the canary in the coal mine or sure. a lot of, of equity value that has been destroyed, handing back the keys to the bank, to the lenders, saying, I don't want this anymore. Right. And so, I, I don't know. I, I'm not um, convinced that we're, you know, with Through it. rates rallying today on CPI being, you know, better than expected, that we're out of the, we're out of the woods. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You think he's still going to do rate increases then, potentially? No, no, I mean, I'm not that smart to figure out if they're going to raise rates, but I could tell you that the, you know, magnitude of inflation coupled with the lack of demand for U.S. bonds you know, long duration bonds, because unfortunately we have something called a, you know, massive debt on the U.S. balance sheet of 34 trillion. And we do almost a trillion dollars in interest expense. But uh, the Druck and Miller uh, podcast was uh, really entertaining because, you know, you've called out Janet Yellen and just like the how horrible and, and the worst treasurer we've ever had. And she should be fired because the entire world refinanced, but she didn't. And yeah, issuing. <laughs> short-term notes. And so um, I just think that the deficit matters mm-hmm. and we have less foreign buyers buying, you know, long duration uh, treasuries. And so can the fundamentals overwhelm, um, meaning the fundamentals get weak? Does the, you know, um, rates rally enough that we, we start to see a reacceleration in the economy mm-hmm. or are rates going to be somewhat sticky because of the challenge of the, in, you know, impact of not having enough demand for those you know, today, those long duration bonds because of the economic state of the, of this country. So a lot of people I'm simplifying here, just the, from just the economics of, we have a huge population. We have a shortage of housing from basically when builders stopped building in, you know, 2008 forward, Uh, what's the latest estimate, 5 million units short of housing in this country, something like that, whatever it it seems to change to whoever you're talking to, but somewhere around that number, um, you know, you've been, uh, Keith actually brought this up. What's about two years ago? I think Keith. Uh, no, it was pre-COVID. So pre-COVID, he. Yeah. I was talking about how we have a housing shortage, and he was like, "Well, there's actually a different opinion that's out there right now." And and then I was like, "What are you talking about?" And then we have a mutual friend who uh, loves to look at all different stuff, and he's been talking about how there's essentially this oversupply. So I guess my question is twofold. Are we actually in a shortage or is that what it is today? You've come out and said there may be actually be an oversupply. Give us some background on all of this, this subject. So, so. We don't believe there's a shortage. Um, in fact, if you look at multifamily, we think we're currently um, about 30% oversupplied based on you know the latest 12 months of starts and what what's in backlog on single family probably more in balance right now but i think that the the view is i i think it's a really comical really to be honest with you because when you talk to whether it's you know ceos of builders or realtors or anyone in the industry they talk about this massive supply deficit which by the way they don't forecast they just listen to whether it be the joint center at harvard or the nar or freddie whoever's forecasting this but everybody just assumes that the demand piece is going to be one and a half million because we've used that forever. That's the demand piece. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the demand piece is the what you should be analyzing. And when we look at that one and a half million, which also includes you know demolition, obsolescence, so call it you know the combination of demand is household plus demolition and obsolescence. Um, what we're seeing is a significant decline in what really feeds household growth, which comes from population. Population fertility rates are uh, massively down 
immigration is massively down, death rates are climbing, even excluding COVID. And in fact, the Census Bureau just came out and gave us a little vindication because we had forecasted for this decade population growth to decelerate from 8% to 4%. And they just finally caught up with us. And the Census Bureau now saying, oh, yeah, shit, we've got a problem. I read this. <laughs> yeah. It just came. I just read it. Yeah. So why is the one and a half million still being mm-hmm. used? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. no, we don't think we have a shortage. And so, by the way, you can, so are, you can argue that maybe households would accelerate if we were offering people $500 a month and we'd have people that are roommates or, you know, living with parents. If we had affordable um, homes, either rent or for sale, we'd see a lot more um, people leaving that they're, you know, un- undesirable living situation. <laughs> but, you know, like, let's look at it right now, which, which is, you know, really interesting. The multifamily market is in really a challenging environment. We have all the predominantly, you know, a lot more uh, where we call it um, the, the, uh, smile states, you know, the sand states, you know, everybody's mm-hmm. kind of like sheep. They all go to the same markets because that's where the population is going. And now we've got a lot of merchant builders and development that can't fill up these buildings and they're having trouble. And guess what? They have new move in rent growth for multifamily is neg- negative. Right. And mm-hmm. we're, we're seeing pressure. So w- w- if we had a shortage, why aren't these multifamily units all being gobbled up? Can you, can you dig a little deeper on this? Because I, Keith knows I'm fascinated with this subject a little bit. It, so essentially the birth, it's called the birth gap. Essentially. It's like, isn't it 2.1, you have to have 2.1 kids for every person in order to sustain, I believe this is the number, unless I'm off, tell me, um, in order to sustain the population as it ages out. And so you're looking at China is like, oh my God, we have a huge problem. I've been reading about this as well. They're like, we don't actually, we've, our, our whole like population control thing was backwards. Right. Uh, Japan, Germany, uh, South Korea, they're all struggling with these issues. What is that? What does that mean if we have an oversupply? Like give us sort of this long-term perspective of what that looks like from your view and how we would solve that, I guess, is a better way. Well, I mean, I think that you know, I was laughing thinking about this because my, <laughs> my kids are like, you know, the best thing that can happen is, you know, we have less people on the planet because uh, we're, we've screwed up our planet. In fact, my 16-year-old said to me, well, she's 19 now. When she was 16, I remember laughing or sitting at uh, dinner and she says, you know, your generation mom has really handed us a bag of rocks. So, you know, <laughs> and how can, how can you argue with that? You know, yeah. this uh um, you know, astute 16 year old now, mm-hmm. 19. But, but I think when you look at the demographics of the world, you know, with the exception of maybe India and, you know, I don't know, it was not China anymore. We're all seeing pressure on overall population growth. And that being said, in the US, what is that going to mean? Well, it's going to mean that you need a lot less incremental housing if you have less population, therefore, at less household growth. Mm-hmm. So, if, if I'm getting your question right, you know, longer term implications, it also, you can argue, is not good for the economy. Where are the workers going to come from? Right. What does it mean for economic growth for nations? So if you don't have, and by the way, we got a real problem, which I, I don't get me on my soapbox, but, you know, we have. <laughs> I'm trying you know, to get our, you there. Our, yeah. our, legislators, <laughs> our legislators, who are all old, right? Yeah. For the most part, the third rail is what, what should be front and center is raising the retirement age. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. we live longer, we are working longer, and that might actually help reduce our deficit, right? right. If we actually reduced um, or increased the retirement age. But just think about all these people that are aging out and, and they're getting to the point 
where they're all going to get Alzheimer's or diabetes or heart failure, you know, we're going to have a healthcare crisis. And mm -hmm. so just where the demographics are going is not good. And it will help one thing, though, with, you know, not to be morbid, but the more people that die, we have more incremental new inventory for the housing market, right? So yeah. we have empty houses, <laughs> that vacancies will rise. That's, yeah. and, that, and filters are like, yay. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That, that yeah. will help. Does does this also so let me take that a step further. Does that does that mean that we need to have a much more adult conversation, which is impossible in Washington DC, but an adult conversation about immigration? Absolutely. We need immigration to, desperately. And and really thinking about that's the way we solve for household growth. That's the only way we can solve for household growth right now. Yeah. Yeah. And doesn't sometimes it gets masked in the numbers because you we all know the baby boomer generation is one of the largest generations. They're aging out, uh, which you refer to. Uh, that's the polite term I use for dying and having their homes become available. And then when you overlay that with a millennial generation, they also are very large, right? But no one is looking at what's right behind the millennial generation. And that's where you really start to see the effects. And right. so it, it feels like it's this lazy logic where, hey, don't worry. I know all these boomers are aging out but the millennials are going to take care of it and no one's really paying attention to what's right behind that well when you think about generation you know i guess it's um millennials the y is now yeah. the alpha yeah. or you, generation z, z is my right. youngest i got two yeah. i got two um uh, millennials and then i got a z and then you get the alpha after that yeah and but, you left them a bag of rocks right but when you look at the rate of change the boomers when they, the 1946 to 1964 is officially the boomers post-World War II, right? Mm -hmm. That cohort increased from the prior cohort, which is roughly 20 years. Each, each cohort is 20 years. Um, apples to apples, we have to adjust for the Xers and, and the millennials to try to make it apples to apples. But the rate of change is what matters. And mm -hmm. the rate of change for the boomers was 53% increase right. from their generation. And when you look at the millennials ra rate of change, it was only like 14%. Mm -hmm. So that, that to me is more important than absolutes because they're both roughly 75 million. So that's right. why people are like, oh, it's a huge cohort, but you're absolutely right. I mean, and my daughter, the oldest 23 year old, and a lot of kids today are like, you know what? I don't want to have kids in this, in this situation we live in today. And I just like, oh my God, I need a little Zoe. You can't say that. You know, I yeah. want you to have babies, you know, not yet, <laughs> babies yet. But, you know, I think a lot of you read in the paper and just recently in the journal, there was an article about, you know, young people are having one at most, if at mm -hmm. all. Yeah. And mm -hmm. there, yeah. there are reasons why uh, of what we're talking about, geopolitical issues, the state of the nation. So it's, it's a very depressing time for young people to bring children into this world. So I was, I was uh, just a side story because I think it's relevant. So I was, I was talking to the, the president of the Canadian Association of Realtors. We were having a conversation. This is about maybe six, eight months ago. We were talking about this. I forget the reason why. And he said that the, the head of real estate, I forget the title there for Japan, flew out to uh, Toronto to meet, to meet with him. And the entire topic of conversation, the entire conversation was about how to have how they're trying to figure out how to get their population to have more kids and they're designing buildings in such ways so that men and women cross paths to try and actually, I'm not making this up. This is, I'm not making this up. He said it's literally designed in such a way that people like interact with each other to try and stimulate conversation and, and I'm just, I'm listening to this going, you're making all this. He's like, no, the guy was calling me for like six months 
finally said I'd take a meeting. Aren't they also incentivizing people and giving them yeah. Yeah. money yeah. for kids? Yeah. Yeah, so there's like I mean, speed speed date tower. Is that but <laughs> that's what they're <laughs> that's what they're building is speed date tower. That's something uh, like that. Something yeah. like that. So uh, let's uh, let's end on this because I've uh, read your book, uh, Give Me Shelter, which is amazing. And James has a little girl, and I have I two do. little girls in my life. Uh, your book is about a lot of things, uh, but the piece that I would love for you to opine about is. Uh, a young lady, which you've touched on a little bit, coming up in a classically alpha male dominant Wall Street environment. Um, what was that like? And I guess if you could help me have something that I could walk out of this room and go talk to my 11 year old about uh, something that she could learn from uh, that she could learn from Auntie Ivy. You know, I think it's about um, recognizing that we have a lot of helicopter parents out there today and maybe arguably I'm included versus yeah. where, I, where I grew up. You know, that my, you know, I just watched Jerry Seinfeld in LA with my son last weekend. Or, and he's like, you know, when I grew up, it was lights out. What is this story shit? What is this singing? And all this stuff happening. And, all this yeah. stuff that, and even I did it. And we really nurture our kids. Whereas mm -hmm. 18, I was out the door and there was no support. You know, I keep, my parents didn't even talk to me about college. So some kids go the other way. Right. I got lucky. I, I, you know, I never wanted to be broke. I, I wanted to be rich. I wanted to never have to be dependent on a man. So I think you start with that, Keith. Talk mm. about resiliency and that she could do anything she wants. And it comes from you and your wife really um, emphasizing that she should say, she should raise her hand in class. Never, yeah. you know, don't any, let anyone intimidate her. Anything she has to say, Condoleezza Rice goes into a classroom and this little white girl says to her, you can't sit next to me. And she went home and told her dad, and he says, if she doesn't want to sit next to you, tell her she should move. Mm. So I think it starts with the parents. It starts mm -hmm. with how you at home really, um, you know, give them the uh, courage to not stand down. You know, I, I actually will make you laugh. My best friend who I've been friends with since we were 12, her daughter was like 12 when she came to New York and was visiting. And we were walking over to a theater district and she started telling me about this little girl that was, you know, giving her a hard time. And, and I said, just slap her across the face, just punch her. <laughs> and, 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 honestly, and, my, and my girlfriend, Lisa, was like, Ivy, what the hell? And I go, she will never bother her again. And, you know, me and my sisters would beat the shit out of each other. I mean, we, we just killed each other. I mean, it was, and, and I think that having grown up in Long Island, New York, Mm -hmm. a public school there was a lot of that and, yeah. and i don't know that you could teach kids to be you know tough but mm. i'm i'm i grew up in a, an environment you know you you go into a situation where there might be a bunch of kids that start picking on you and you just can't tolerate that now you know kids get you know su suspended expelled they you, you said we were allowed to beat the shit out of each other right but, right, you know, right let's meet at the mini park i just watch. figured out why keith is a fanboy because keith <laughs> you're gonna Keith's whole thing is when oh, anybody yeah. ever gets mouthy with him, he's like, you know what? Let's just do this. Let's go to the parking lot and we'll just solve this together. You know, it's like, I'll meet you outside. And nobody ever goes outside. So like, there and then the go. problem's over. I've you been know, trying he, to get trial, trial by, by combat. combat. Yeah. I've been trying to get trial by combat. There's a crazy our... uncle t-shirt. Crazy uncle <laughs> Keith t-shirt is trial by combat, by the way. Well, I think it um, makes it like, it, you don't always get the right answer, but it's very simple, right? Well, <laughs> so. you know, when I worked at Solomon Brothers, because I had a big mouth, you know, I had a teacher throw an eraser. I you read that in my book at me. Yeah. Um, I was never afraid to say what I thought. And I don't know that I'm really my parents. I don't know where I got it from. Mm -hmm. But um, I think that 
when you go back to my days at Solomon Brothers, a lot of people would whisper and say, she's really aggressive. Right. And I would hear comments and, you know, oh my God. Mm. And I say, I'm assertive, not aggressive. <laughs> yeah. And I think yeah. that there's a good book for you guys with young daughters to read called um, Girls on the Edge by Leonard Ooh. Sachs. It was a phenomenal book. Um, and I wish I had read it years before my daughters were, you know, teenagers. But I, I think that we as parents, we kind of have to let our kids fail a little bit. You know, I think my greatest success was that I was on my own. My, unfortunately, my, my parents didn't have uh, the means to, to help, nor did they give a shit, to be honest. But that's another story. Um, <laughs> you know, I was out there on my own. And mm -hmm. I had to fend for myself. But you as parents, you know, we want to protect our kids. We want to do everything. I, I, I'm also, like, totally responsible for, you know, maybe enabling my kids. But they sure. also see a mother who, by the way, you know, makes a lot of decisions and works really hard mm -hmm. that hopefully they've learned from. And I think that and not accepting unacceptable behavior. You know, I have a lot of slogans, but they, they know that and they know they need to speak up. Um, but I'm sure you guys are doing a great job. It's not easy, but with, you know, <laughs> no. just, just yeah. tell me, yeah. I, mean, yeah, I, I, beat, I beat these girls up. I have girls. Oh my God. I did this thing at Miami of, um, Ohio. I'm actually going to start doing, uh, teaching a class at Case Western in Cleveland, uh, next spring one class. But like, I cannot believe these kids like, you know, okay. So this girl is, uh, this was actually a George Mason, not the Miami. Uh, um, I was at a, a dinner with these young women and she was telling me about her internship um, over summer. And, and I said, well, did you talk to, you know, what did, do you ask questions? She said, well, I didn't want to really bother anybody. I was like, oh my God. I you're mean, there you know, to bother people. Right. And yeah, I just think yeah. there's so much fear of like, hmm. you know, I don't want to raise my hand because I might have the wrong answer. Um, when I was a case, I was presented to, I don't know, presented, had an, had an informal interaction with 30 kids and I literally call them out like, cause yeah. they just don't want to talk. They're also mm. shy. And mm. I guess you just have to tell people, you know, say what you think and, and don't be afraid of, of a backlash or being wrong. It's okay to be wrong. Right. And, right. and I'm wrong a lot. Mm-hmm. Keith, can I, I want to ask one more question. Do you yeah. mind before we no. I, I know we, I, this is totally off the cuff because it, you just said, you know, speak up and and just you want to it just i think it's just relevant what yeah. would you do right now with the because I just, your brain's fascinating to me what would you do right now with washington dc and this debt fight that's going on i just i'm gonna turn it i'm gonna go mm -hmm. 180 for a second i just have to hear like yeah should should we be addressing this 34 trillion dollars is this going to affect housing if we keep running it up like what what would you do if well, you were in this situation it's a, right it's now such a comical you know situation we're in it's 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 a sad comedy it's it's like the theater we're now going to shut down again you know i was talking to this woman who works at the irs who's auditing me i think i'm going to be okay but she's like i don't know i don't know i don't know if i'll be able to talk to you i might be out of, i might not be able to talk to you we're going to be shutting down but you know in reality we need better leadership i mean we need someone who's not geriatric for god's sakes i mean but yes we need to cut spending we need to raise taxes we need to raise the retirement age and we have to take the deficit seriously because you know what we're the only reason we're not venezuela or honduras or any of these third world markets is because we're the reserve currency yep and I'm not smart enough to know much about it, but if we weren't the reserve currency, which we probably always will be, we would be no better than a lot of third world nations given our balance sheet today. So I think that, yes, we have to address the deficit. It could be painful, but if we don't, your children, my children, it's just not, the world's not going to get better. We can't just yeah. get the cocaine and the crack, keep getting lower <laughs> rates to fix everything. 
Yeah. You know, and I think Jay Powell's got that, and I hope that he sustains that. But what we have in leadership in Washington, I mean, I don't, I don't need to tell you guys how pathetic yeah, we are no, right now. Yeah, All right. A, well, I think that's a good way to the geriatric cocaine, and I spend the last one. <laughs> um, we'll and, leave it there uh, and buy girls on the edge and read it yeah, so exactly. that we can girls be better fathers to our daughters. <laughs> I mean, this is awesome. Yell. Yeah. Thank, right. yes. thank you for for being here. Thank you for you know, your insights on everything, including the parenting advice. So yeah. Awesome. Nice. We appreciate that. So yeah. um, we'll have to have you back and then we can in, in a year and be like, where did we all end up? <laughs> yeah. Since yeah. How do we do? How do we do? So yeah. Thank you, Ivy. All right. All right. Well, we appreciate it. We'll see you soon. Okay. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Listen, we care about you deeply, which is why we never want you to miss an episode of this podcast. Subscribe now. It's just a push of a button.